And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, glad to see everybody, as always, this morning. Um, Glad some of you all can join us online. Uh, But we're here because we need to hear God's Word. Because it's only in God's Word that we meet Him. It is only through God's Word that we understand what kind of community we should be and what real compassion for our neighbors looks like. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would speak to us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord our God, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever been in a situation where things went differently than you expected them to be? Many of y'all know I was in the Navy for four years. Uh, you go into the military, and there is all this uh, mystique about it. But then once you're in the military for a while, you realize that life in the Navy, for example, is a lot more like the office than it is like Top Gun. The day in and day out is a lot different than you think it's going to be. When I was called by RUF to be the campus minister at Harvard, I was going to this amazing place that is one of the premier universities in the world, and I discovered that life at Harvard day in and day out was a lot more like Saved by the Bell than Goodwill Hunting. Our expectations about life, our expectations about our situations, our expectation about people is often very different than the reality of it. We're getting this morning to really the hinge, the turning point of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, This week and for the next couple of weeks afterwards, we're going to wrap up our series in Mark for the time being. We'll get back to Mark next year again and keep going, but we're getting to really the turning point in the gospel, this series of events that starts here and ends with the transfiguration. And in that, Jesus is beginning to reveal what it really means that he's the Christ, He's getting, we're going to get to what that title means in a minute, but he's revealing that they didn't quite understand what it was supposed to be. We'll be thinking about the truth of it, the goodness of it, the beauty of it, and this morning we're really going to focus on the truth, the truth of what Jesus has done at the Christ, that is a covenantal truth and a sacrificial truth. There's only two points this morning, a covenantal truth and a sacrificial truth. So, we start, of course with this conversation. Jesus and his disciples are 
walking around. They're kind of, they're north of Galilee a little bit uh, in a town called Caesarea Philippi. The details of that are not so important, but you notice that they're having a conversation about who Jesus is. And Jesus kind of begins the conversation. Who, who do people say that I am? And if you've been reading through Mark, you'll notice that this actually echoes something we've already heard back in chapter 6. When we, heard the, when we were told the story of John the Baptist's execution, we hear that there are all kinds of rumors about who Jesus is. And everybody seems to recognize that he's some kind of prophet. And that's true, of course. But he's more than that. And people are wondering what else he is. Maybe he is John the Baptist brought back from the dead. That was what Herod was really scared about. <laughs> Maybe that was, it. that was what it was. Uh, but then others were wondering, is he Elijah? Elijah was a great Old Testament prophet. There's all these stories uh, at the end of 1 Kings and beginning of 2 Kings about Elijah. And the very last of the Old Testament prophets, a guy named Malachi, at the very end of his prophecy, so pretty much at the end of God speaking in the Old Testament period, he promises that one like Elijah, a figure like Elijah, would come just before the Lord returns. So people are wondering, is he Elijah? And actually, Jesus tells us elsewhere in Matthew 11 that John the Baptist was that Elijah figure. But, pe- but every- people haven't put all the pieces together, right? They're figuring this out. They're, they're saying, okay, Jesus is some sort of prophet. What is he like? What is he like? And then Jesus asks this question, who do you say that I am? Who do you <laughs> say that I am? Whenever Jesus asks a question, it's usually explosive, isn't it? And Peter, to Peter's credit, is beginning to see a little bit of the picture. You're the Christ. Now, we may think of Christ as Jesus' last name, as if there was sort of Joseph Christ, that was his dad or something like that, but you recognize, I hope, in the context here, that that word is a title. It's not a name, it's a title. It's the, it's the Greek word, you, you, we get the word christening from this, right? So, Christ is a Greek word, Messiah is the Hebrew word, and they both mean someone who's anointed, the anointed one. And if you're familiar with the Psalms, you'll recognize that term, or a lot of the prophets, they use this term a lot. This idea of the Messiah, the anointed one, it it, it invokes all the offices of the covenant, the prophet, priest, and king. If you've been around the church, maybe you've heard those three paired up before, right? But that's because in the Old Testament covenant, there were three types of people that were anointed. You might know the stories of King David being anointed, right? The kings were anointed. Uh, The priests were, if you get into the Levitical law, when they were (laughs) commissioned as priests, they were anointed. Uh, And there are some moments along the way where we see the priests are anointed. So this idea of prophet, priest, and king is evoked here. Uh, This is what the Messiah is. It is where all three of these meet. This is why the idea of the son of David is so important. Because David was like that. He was a king, but he also functioned as a priest and a prophet. 
we have all, you know, we have all these psalms which are called prophecies at times throughout the New Testament. So this idea of prophet, priest, and king is really powerful. But here's the deal. Did Peter know what he was talking about? He gave the right answer, but it is pretty clear later on that he doesn't actually understand what the Christ is going to do. See, nobody did. On either side of Jesus, about a hundred years either way of Jesus, on either side of him, there were a bunch of messianic movements in Israel. And there's too many of them to, uh, people debate actually how many there were. Some of them were probably pretty small. Some of them were bigger. Uh, but there were different movements of folks who, who thought they, the Messiah had arrived, or at least thought he was there. And some of them were pretty sure they knew exactly who he was. Some of them claimed to be messiahs. Uh, some, some of the different leaders. Here's the deal. They were all, all of them, to a movement, every single one of them, were an insurgent movement. They were trying to claim back political power from Rome. And every one of the leaders died. Either on the battlefield or on a cross. And a would-be Messiah hanging on a cross was a failure. He had not delivered God's people. The terms in which all of these movements understood what a Messiah was, was he was going to free them from the power of Rome. He was going to establish, reestablish Israel as a political power. The very last of these movements actually happens right about 100 years after Jesus in 135. Well, it ends in 135 the last of these rebellions, and that is the rebellion in which Rome decided to wipe Israel off the map as a political entity. There's only one messianic, I mean, this is an interesting fact, there's only one of these messianic movements that lived on. It was Jesus. Because Jesus thinks of his work as something different. We're going to get into that more as we go, but it's worth stopping and reflecting that when Jesus takes the title of Christ, or more specifically, when he allows his disciples to arrive at the conclusion that he is the Christ, he is bringing all of the covenantal language to bear. Now, this is, that sounds technical. It's so important because this gives us deeper clarity on what it means to have a personal relationship with God. Evangelicals talk a lot, a lot about the personal relationship with God, don't we? That is language I've grown up with in evangelical churches. It's kind of everywhere, have a personal relationship with God, which is, it's not wrong, right? It's, impo- it's, it's important. It's helpful in some ways. It's making the point that God is not an abstract principle, that God is not some distant entity or all-encompassing principle of the universe, but rather he is personal. He deals with people one-to-one. It's actually, there's more to it than that even, because God didn't just create and then therefore takes on relationships, but God is personal, interrelational in and of himself. But before he even created anything, he was three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. God was already personal, 
in and of himself, in creation past, he created because he was personal, because, he, because of the overflow of his own love within his life as Father, Son, and Spirit. So it's not wrong to talk about a personal relationship with God, but what kind of personal relationship? There's the rub, isn't it? Because you and I all have relationships with people that aren't necessarily great. You know, what, it, what about a stern, overbearing parent? I mean, that's kind of, a, I think, a pretty common way of thinking about God. And maybe not the most attractive kind of personal relationship. I mean, is Jesus just kind of your frat bro? Like, what, what kind of personal relationship do you have with Jesus? You know, there's, there's all kinds of ways in which we can construe that. And this idea that Jesus is the ultimate office bearer of the covenant brings us into something deep and rich and clarifying about what that relationship is like. A covenant is a kind of structured relationship, right? It's not anything you want it to be. God is, God, it is a kind of structured relationship. It's more than a contract, right? A contract is an exchange of goods or services, right? We sign, you sign contracts with your utility company, right? They're going to send power to your house, and you're going to pay them for it. They're going to pump water to your house, you're going to pay them for it, right? Your com- companies, your, they're all, all contracts, right? Uh, it's an exchange of goods and services. It's usually uh, limited in scope, right? It's, okay, we're going to help you with this one thing. We're going to come to that agreement. Okay, this one kind of thing is what we do and we'll do for you. It has an end to it or at least a way of opting out of it at some point. Um, and there's, a, there's usually a kind of uh, monetary penalty if you decide to break it, right? You can, you sign, you sign your contract with your cell phone company, but you can get out of it. You'll have to pay them more, right? <laughs> But you can get out of it. It's just that it's ultimately it's not that big a deal to break it. A covenant, on the other hand, involves your whole life. It's it, the language of a covenant is always familial. Even in ancient political covenants, the way that the the way that the kings that were in covenant with one another would talk to each other is as father and son. The, the kind of more powerful regional king would be the guy that was the father, and the smaller vassal kingdom would be son. They would use that kind of language, right? And it, oh, it, it involved this kind of whole life commitment. There was no expiration date to it. The con- the, it's not a contract that runs out. This is us for life. We're here. There's not a way to opt out of it. And the penalty... For breaking the covenant was costly in the extreme. In fact, in the ancient world, breaking many of the covenants could cost you your life. It was that kind of serious deal. What we're saying then is the kind of relationship that God wants with us is this kind of whole life, never-ending, loving relationship, right? It's enduring. It involves everything that you are. You can tease a couple of these implications out this morning, and we could probably unpack that forever, but 
One of them is that, is that we actually owe God our allegiance as citizens. Remember, he is the king. Now, what's curious about the way that, that we tend to think about Jesus, maybe even especially in the American context, is we actually miss the political overtones of this. Don't freak out on me when I, talk, when I use the word political. What I mean is that Jesus is a king. That is about who's ruling, who's governing. That is the language. And we're told again and again and again that we're called to be committed to Jesus' social vision for the world. A social vision that, has, that says that it is better to give than to receive. That blesses the meek and the poor in spirit. A kind of social vision that says the first will be last and the last will be first. That's what we're called to. And look, it does put things like patriotism and politics in their place. Don't get me wrong. So, you know I'm in the military. I'm the son of a vet. I'm the grandson of a vet. I'll, put my, I'll stack my patriotism up against anybody's. Okay, if you want the Purple Heart. Sorry. You, 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 you know, I won't stack it against you. But anybody else. Like, but... The United States is not the kingdom of God. That shouldn't be a controversial thing to say in the church. You know, the church that's existed for 2,000 years, long before the United States existed, and what we're told is long after the United States is a forgotten reality. This is not the kingdom of God. Can you be patriotic? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. God put you here. God put you in this country. Maybe you came to this country. And there's lots of great things about America. There's also lots of problems with America. And when we make an idol of it, of course, we blind ourselves to the problems. Or if we get more political, we choose which problems we're going to blind ourselves to. And this is the problem, of course, with our own political environment is that it is a kind of religion to itself. And I think this goes for both sides of the aisle. And the Christian is reminded over and over and over again that our allegiance is with Jesus. The early church knew this better than we do. There's a, a, a famous letter, well, famous in certain circles, I suppose, uh, from about 180, the year 180, called the Epistle to Diognetus. Uh, this is a, we don't know who wrote it, but it is a kind of defense of Christianity. Uh, you, can find, you can find it online. You can look it up. This is one of the things that the writer says. He says, Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ the peculiar for, a peculiar form of speech, that doesn't say that we speak all kinds of different languages, right? Uh, nor do we lead a life which is marked out by any singularity, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot, each has been determined, in other words, according to wherever we were born, <laughs> and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct. In other words, we look like anybody in our in our home country, our home city. 
Yet, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. In other words, it is the way in which we go through life that is different. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign country is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. The Bible uses this language over and over again, that we are like Abraham, our forefather, strangers in this world, sojourners passing through. Because our citizenship is with Christ in his kingdom. Therefore, obedience to him in this, so it involves our allegiance, but also involves our obedience, but it's an obedience of those who are an heir to the king. That is a world of difference. As king, he calls for our obedience, of course, but like Israel before us, we are told that he is our father. We're reminded that we do not relate to God simply as someone who's a judge. In fact, the the apostles throughout the rest of the New Testament will unpack this in different ways. Paul probably most famously in Galatians, right? He says, look, there's a way of obedience that is like being a servant. There's a way of obedience that's like, that's like you're just doing this for the wages involved. And here's the deal. If you go down that route, if your obedience is like that, this is what it looks like. Your fa- failures will lead to fear and to shame. And more than that, your obedience will lead to pride. But if you know that you're an heir of the king, your your failures lead to conviction, and instead of causing you to hide, you run to him. Instead of being proud of your obedience, it fills you with joy and humility. And this is the deal. What Jesus is saying is the way that I'm going to fulfill the office of the Christ is I'm going in your place to the cross. That means obedience doesn't, or our failures don't lead us to to shame, but rather we recognize that it is when we are in need that Jesus is the most drawn to us. When his heart is open widest to us, it's when we're in need. This is really the secret of obedience is to know that you are a child of God. To draw on the confidence that that gives you, the security it gives you, and the humility to dust yourself off and to go to Him and ask for the Spirit and to keep going. And it involves the so this kind of demand, covenantal demand involves our obedience, it involves our allegiance, it also involves our attention. And this is harder to get at. Because this is a, what I mean here is it's about what you daydream about. It's about the things that fill your imagination. 
the things that you find yourself wandering back to over and over and over again, and we are so easily distracted. All of us. We're distracted by the workaday things. We're distracted by, you know, the daily routine, getting all the things done that we need to get done. And we lose focus. But what Jesus is saying is that I'm giving myself for you. What the New Testament over and over again reminds us is to think about that often. Go back often again and again to the cross to find out how, what the truth is about who you are. That's where you will find it. You ever, you ever done that icebreaker where it's like, if you could go back in time and spend a day with anybody, who would you spend a day with? And of course, it's a way of revealing the kinds of things you're interested in, right? Because some of us might pick like great political leaders of the, <laughs> from the past. Some of us might go visit a great artist from the past. Some of us might, you know, be interested in a, a great scientific mind from the past. You know, I don't know, whatever your interest is. Here's the deal. There's a big difference between asking who would you spend one day with and then if you ask somebody, who would you go spend a year with? Because, like, I love the paintings of Van Gogh. But spending a year with Vincent Van Gogh would be rough. Like, that would be a tough go of it, right? There are great, there are great like, political military leaders of the past who, you know, you could learn a ton from. But they were difficult people. You know, there's a lot of people who are great, but you wouldn't necessarily want to spend your life with them. What Jesus is saying is think about what I've done for you. Don't you want to spend time reflecting on that? That should fill our imaginations. Reflecting on the cross and the resurrection over and over and over again, reminds us the truth of who God is. Reminds us the depth of his love, his covenantal commitment to us. So it's covenantal, the truth about God, but it's also sacrificial. N.T. Wright, who Mike mentioned earlier, uh, a New Testament scholar says this, he says, Jesus' style of Messiahship was sufficiently similar to those in the public mind to get him executed. Right? It was sufficiently like those other movements to get him killed. And for his followers to see his resurrection as a reaffirmation of him as the Messiah. But it was sufficiently dissimilar to mean that everyone from his closest followers, these disciples, through to the chief priests, misinterpreted at least to some extent what he was really getting at. And that movement, which did come to birth after his resurrection, Though calling itself messianic, cherished agendas and adopted lifestyles quite unlike those of other movements with the same label. Get what he's saying? Jesus was sufficiently like these other messiahs that people kind of understood what he was talking about, but he was sufficiently different that it kind of blew it up. And this is what he gets at in verses 31 and 32. Jesus starts to tell them plainly what he's going to do. 
You remember, Jesus, in many ways, has been talking parables along the way. The, the, I, the cross, the end of Jesus' life, has to some extent been a thing that we've teased out, knowing the end already. But Jesus is beginning here to start to speak plainly about it. And this is what he says. He says, I'm going to suffer many things. Now, maybe that was not particularly surprising. There's a, a long history of, of course, David himself experiencing trials and difficulties, right? So, okay, Messiah, people are going to give him a hard time. We know he's going to win, but okay, he's going to come through all that. Rejection by the religious leaders. Maybe that wasn't a surprise because if you've been walking with Jesus for very long, you know he keeps coming in conflict with the religious leaders. Okay, but you know, notice that what he's implying then is that his arrival as the Christ will be a religious upheaval. Then it goes on to say that he'll be killed. And that's where the problems really start, right? Remember, the dead messiahs did not accomplish what they came to accomplish. They all failed. To be a dead messiah was to be a failed messiah. And moreover, the clear implication is that it's the religious leaders who hand him over to be killed. The people who knew God's word. And finally, he says, I will rise again after three days. And at this point, his disciples are completely lost. We know this because when it happens, they still don't get it. It still takes a long time for them to piece it all together. Oh, you meant that? So Jesus is speaking to them plainly, but they don't understand. And in fact, when Peter starts to get bothered by some of this, this this being killed talk, I don't know about that. He rebukes Jesus. We don't know what he said exactly. But what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. I mean, Peter's emotional pendulum he was the one who said he was the Christ, right? So he's feeling great about himself, and then Jesus calls him Satan, right? Like, Peter is probably reeling at this point. And of course, what, he, what Jesus is saying is, Peter, don't you understand that you are giving voice to the satanic plot to foil what I'm doing? You know, when Jesus met Satan at the beginning of his ministry, one of the things that Satan says is, Look, you can have the kingdoms of the world. Remember, this is a po- Jesus has a political agenda. He is coming to be the king of kings, to reign over this world, to bring in a new social reality for the whole world that will last forever. And Satan says to him, get the kingdoms of the world. If you just bow down to me, I'll give them over to you. That was the easy way out. And when Peter says, Jesus, let's not, let's not have any of this being killed talk. Jesus says, look, don't you realize you're giving voice to that way of thinking? You're giving voice to a satanic plot. Because what Jesus knows is that there is no other way but through the cross. 
There is no other way. The way of God's covenantal love has to be sacrificial. See, all along the way in the Old Testament, right, we're given all these clues, and it would take too long to go through, all the, to, to, through many of these examples, but think of Abraham on the mountain with Isaac, about to sacrifice him, right? And then Jesus gives a ram instead. There are all these places all throughout the Old Testament where God shows us that he is going to fulfill the covenant despite our failures. That God's covenant with us is not symmetrical. (laughs) It is not about us doing our part and him doing his. No, he's going to show up and he's going to succeed. He is going to fulfill the covenant despite all of our failures. This is the way. The covenant with God is going to be fulfilled not by our goodness. Because let's be honest, right? We all screw up. We all got a propensity to screw up. No, God is going to fulfill it himself. It is the self-sacrificing, self-giving love that is the way. Now, it does serve as an example to us, and we're going to see that next week. Jesus will explicitly bring up the cross next week as a way of life. But before he gets there, you have to recognize that he is the only one who uniquely can fulfill the covenant. That whatever he asks of us is only to take on and learn his character. But it is his character, his sacrificial character, that achieves redemption. It is his sacrificial heart that solves the problem. You see, because this is the deal. We're the problem in one sense for the covenant, right? We're the ones who keep screwing up. God doesn't keep screwing up. We keep screwing up. Yet, what Satan has known from the very beginning is that sin is a problem not simply between us and God, but is a problem for God himself. I'm not saying God's unaware of it. (laughs) But you see, what Satan wants is a wedge between God's love and his justice. This is why he wants, this is why he comes to Adam and Eve. This is why he doesn't come in as a destroying force but a subversive one. This is why he doesn't show up in power to overwhelm them, but instead comes with lies and deception. Because he wants them to be a problem. He wants the problem to be in God's own heart, the tension between God's love and his justice. Of course, what we know is that is no mystery to God. He knew that before creation. But what even Satan didn't understand was how far God would go in his love. And this is why the cross is a scandal. It's so interesting, isn't it? The cross is the shorthand for the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 2, this is what Paul says. This is what he calls the gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is there more to it? Of course, right? I mean, we know the whole longer story, right? But the cross is the point at which everything comes to a head. It's the turning point in the covenant. 
It's the turning point in history, right? Because it's that moment that God resolves his love and his justice by taking justice onto himself on our behalf. That's the, that's the point at which God proves that this problem that Satan has tried to make for him is not going to be a barrier because his love is so big that he will give himself for us. And that is why also in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say, look, the cross is a scandal to those who are religious and it's foolishness to those who aren't. It's a scandal to those who are religious because it means the kind of God that we want to deal with. The one that we can kind of barter with. I'll be obedient, I'll be good, but you'll give me these things in return, right? The kind of God that we would have a contractual relationship with isn't actually the God we're dealing with. Jesus isn't dealing in exchange. Jesus deals in self-sacrificial love. In its foolishness, because it takes us out of the picture. You get that? This is why, the, this is why it is foolishness to the irreligious, because it means it's not up to us. It means that God has done everything. That God has done everything that we need. And look, the, the cult of human goodness... <laughs> is ancient. It goes back to Adam and Eve. This idea that we could be self-sufficient, that we could do all that we need to do, and the cross says you cannot do it. That that is a fool's errand. That the wisdom of the world says you can be good enough. And the cross says that God is good enough, even for you. This is why, again, like we were talking about with the imagination, we have to go back to the cross over and over and over again because the Bible says that all of history was leading to it. Because the truth about who God is, all of his goodness, all of the beauties of his character are revealed at that moment when Jesus' life is given for you. Have you seen what he revealed at the cross? Have you thought about it? When was the last time you spent some time reflecting on the mystery of the cross and all that it involves? Do you want to know if God really cares about you? Have you seen what he revealed at the cross? Do you want to know if God wants what's best for you? Have you seen what he's revealed at the cross? Do you want to know if God has a plan for your life to work out for the good? Have you seen what he revealed at the cross? Do you want to know if God can really save you from what you've done? Have you seen what he's done at the cross? Do you want to know if God really takes evil seriously? Have you seen what he did at the cross? Do you want to know if God is making too big a deal out of sins, have you seen what he did at the cross? Do you want to know if God can be trusted? Have you seen what he did at the cross? Do you want to know 
If God knows how difficult life can be, have you seen what he did at the cross? Do you want to know if God will deliver on his promises to us? Have you seen what he did there at the cross? Do you want to know if God will ever turn away, could ever turn away from you? Have you seen what he did at the cross? Have you seen it? Let's pray. Father, we pray that the cross would be fixed in our minds. Pray that you would make it plain to us the truth of your heart, the truth of how deeply loved we are, of your covenantal faithfulness, of the power of your sacrificial love. Make it plain to us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.